This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. In this episode, I'm talking to John Campbell, who about 20 years ago wrote a major biography of Margaret Thatcher. It was so major, it's actually been republished in parts since then. But when he came in to talk to me at the Langham Hotel in London, I asked him if this was an authorised biography. The lady, the Iron Lady, was still alive. It's, she knows it's happening. She is taking what I regard as the right attitude for a subject to an author. Um, so hands off, you know, she's not obstructing me at all. Uh, but she's been very helpful in allowing me to quote things, for instance, which she could have denied me if she'd been unhelpful. Do you write this as a disciple, you know, as an avid fan? Oh, not at all, not at all. I write it as a historian, I hope. I mean, I'm a contemporary historian who writes about people who are still alive, but I tend to treat them as if, as if they've been dead for 100 years, in a way. I've got the advantage of talking to lots of other people. I try not... I mean, I'm quite happy not talking to the subject herself, and I've done this with previous subjects. When she has been dead for 100 years, do you think that uh, she will be a footnote or will she be a major chapter? Oh, she's down, bound to be at least one major chapter. I mean, she was Prime Minister a very long time. I mean, she simply, quite apart from any judgments about you know, the success or failure of what she did, she, she took up a very large chunk of the century being Prime Minister. Admittedly, John Major took up two-thirds of the same length of time and maybe more of a footnote. But, I mean, no, she is undoubtedly one of the, the most important and effective prime ministers. How much of a key to her grown-upness is her childhood, which she quoted ad nauseam? Yes, well, she used her childhood very successfully to show that she wasn't... Um, brought up in privilege, that, 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 that she was brought up you know, over the shop, was an ordinary woman in, in touch with Middle England, as it's now called. Because when she first came to prominence, people thought of her as very much a sort of home county's lady in a hat and pearls and thought that she would never win votes north of Watford. She was thought to be very limited and suburban. And it was very important to her to, to show that she was brought up in Grantham um, and that her father was a grocer. So she used the sort of image of, of, of her childhood um, and polished it and used it as a sort of political parable with her father's virtues of thrift and all the rest of it that she wanted to yeah. apply to the country. But, I mean, that said, I mean, her, her upbringing clearly was very important. I think she spun it, if you like, in a certain way very successfully. But that's not to say that, you know, what she was spinning wasn't fundamentally true. She was brought up in a grocer's shop in Grantham, and she was brought up to very hard work by her father, um, and her father was a great influence on her. OK, but you say that uh, Grantham is narrow and um, Methodists in Grantham are probably even narrower, and it does seem that uh, Alderman Roberts or whatever could have won a narrowness competition. Yes, I think, I think she deliberately got away from that. I think even within her own memoirs, where she is trying to to put a good gloss on it and how saying it wasn't really all that narrow and the church had a very good social life and all the rest of it. It is perfectly clear that she was looking to escape and she did have a hankering for a wider stage. She was a sort of latent actress, I think, as we see when she 
when she exploded on the wider stage. Yes, because she has this memorable week in London where she goes to stay with a Methodist parson who aren't usually, and I speak from knowledge, aren't usually hotbeds of high living parsons' houses. Um, and she had this magical week. Yes, she had. I mean, it, it was wonderful. She, she, it was the only time she went to London you know, in, in her early life at all. And she you know, saw the sights and you know, the Tower of London and Buckingham Palace. And she went to a show. Um, and this was out of her experience. And the fact that it was never, never repeated, I think, made it a very, a very magical experience. She sometimes went to the cinema in Nottingham. You know, that was a big day out on a bank holiday. But it was a very restricted and narrow childhood. And she did consciously say several times, you know, that she wanted to give her children a bit more fun than she had had in her childhood. So she did kick against the bricks. Yeah, but when it comes round to her children, there's an awful scene where Mark... I think he's gone to... Uh, she's been taken... Mark and Carol have been taken to see Auntie, mm. and he's dressed like little Lord Fauntleroy <laughs> and says to, uh, to his cousin, Oh, no, I couldn't possibly shake your hand because you're scruffy or something. Well, that was told me by an old school friend of hers whom she did keep up with for quite a long time, and there was this embarrassing scene when, yes, I mean, she did dress her children very correctly, you know, the right sort of shoes and ties and little skirts and things. I mean, yes, that she was very formal. She was very... She was very up upwardly mobile, getting away from Grantham, becoming... She was making her way in the Tory party um, and becoming a respectable... Sort of a Tory sort of lady, yeah. as they were in the 50s. Now, yeah. what do we get from her mother? Um, I think at one point she says, Mother and I never... She, mother didn't have anything to say to me after the age of 15. Mm. What a devastating thing to say about your mother. Yes, yes. I mean, it is true. She does seem to have had nothing in common, really, with her mother. And, and even when she tries in her memoirs, she was obviously sort of slightly stung by the fact that people picked up the fact that she could never talk about her mother. Various interviewers tried. And she always changed the subject back to her father. So in her memoirs, I think she makes a, a, an effort to try and find nice things to say about her mother. And all she can say is that she taught, taught, taught her to cook and taught her to iron a man's shirt and all these domestic skills that she got from her mother. But there's no, no sort of maternal, no sense of maternal love at all. She's fonder, I mean, fonder, if anything, of the grandmother who died when she was 10. She's got some memories of the grandmother. But she doesn't manage to come up with any warm memories of her mother at all. Let's say that word warm, because uh, if she takes it all from her father, her father you, you describe as kind of conciliatory, uh, tolerant, which are not words that you could use about his daughter. No, I mean, I think, I mean, one shouldn't over... I mean, his father was, was, a, was, a, was an aloof man in many ways. He didn't have many friends. Someone described him as lofty. He was very tall, but he had a tall sort of manner to him as well. But at the same time, he was an effective local politician who got on well with the uh, opposition and with everybody else. I mean, he was... I mean, people have tended to describe him as a sort of, you know, as a, a small, all times sort of mafia boss and things. And he wasn't. He was one councillor among many. He had his turn at uh, some mayor, as they all did. You know, some of them had two terms as mayor. He was a good local politician, oiling the wheels of local government in Grantham. He was keen on keeping the rates down. That was certainly something she got from him. I mean, he was strict in his morality. Um, you know, he didn't like the cinemas being open on Sunday. They, he, allowed, he, he agreed um, to um, alter that during the war, when there were you know, soldiers who wanted, airmen particularly, wanted, wanted to go to the cinema. I mean, I, I mean he was... 
strict but flexible in some ways, I think. But he yes. wasn't aggressive. She has this extraordinary combative aggression, which is unique among, among <laughs> politicians, I think. One civil servant told me this, that I mean, every other politician he'd ever dealt with coming into a room at a meeting would look for agreement and try to please people and bring them on board. She would always find the point of disagreement and widen it. And, and this he had never met in any previous politician. And I think it's, it's a key to her character. And I can't really explain where she gets it from. It doesn't seem to me she gets that from her father. It seems to me almost it, it, it's, it's a sort of something she's doing in reaction against her father. So would it be pushing it too far to say that her whole career is kind of two fingers to dad? You know, she's just kind of kicking over these parental traces. Well, it might be pushing it too far, but it's, it's, a, tempting, well, <clears throat> it's a tempting hypothesis, I think. I mean, there is some d delayed rebellion, it seems to me, that she does through the very conventional career structure of the Tory party. She works her way up in it in the way she was obviously a... a an obedient and submissive sort of daughter, and she was the same sort of good subordinate all the way up the Tory party, not rocking the boat at all. And yet when she got there, in a sense it was two fingers to everybody, and maybe it was two fingers to her father. Yes, there was a sort of a, sort yeah. of a, a, a pent-up aggression in her character that nobody had really suspected was there. She was very, very diligent and very hard-working uh, all the way up. But no-one really saw that she had this... Anger. Anger in her, yes, that's right. Yes. And, and I think one has to attribute, you know, I mean, without getting too, 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 too much pop psychology, one, 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 one has to look in the childhood for, for the basic formation of the personality. Something else as well, she is almost universally dowdy isn't she? I mean, she's kind of... She looks like... Um, through, through college, through university, people go... Oh, as oh, a young woman. As a young yes, woman, yes. yes. But yes. when she gets... At least to our eyes, because in a way, I mean, all the fashions of the, of the 40s and 50s look pretty dowdy to our eyes now, to be honest, and, and all young women look remarkably middle-aged to our eyes. I th I'm not... But, I mean, yes, I mean, she did. At Oxford, certainly, she, 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 she was... You know, people remember her as a brown girl. With, she, wasn't, she wasn't glamorous at all. She bought... You know, she was very clear about buying sort of hard-wearing, sensible clothes, you know. And but when she gets power, it's as if there's a, a frisson attached yes. to it. Well, that's right. I mean, someone who observes her very well when she gets power is Barbara Castle, from the other side of the house, opposing her politically, but admiring what she's doing as a woman and saying, I, I understand what she's feeling. There's a, there's a sort of sex appeal, a sort of drive that she gets through being in charge and bossing all these men. Um, and, and I think certainly, I mean, she thrived on that. She came alive and became more, more womanly, in a sense, and more attractive at the same time as she got more powerful. And she played this very successfully and skillfully, which was wrong-footed the men who didn't know how to treat her at all. I mean, Dennis wasn't uh, the last among many. I mean, he was the first and last, wasn't he? As far as we know. Yes. yes, I think so, yes. It was always like, I mean, the important thing about Dennis is that he's ten years older than her. So I think one, again, has to see him as a sort of father figure, substitute father figure. There's this symbolic moment at her adoption meeting when she's being a, uh, as a candidate in Dartford, uh, when she uh, sorry, arrives with her father and leaves with Dennis. And I think there's a, 
a, a sort of a, a sort of shift in her life happened at that meeting in a sense. But, but, but Dennis was a was a rock and support and an older man, and I think it's very important that he was older. She always liked being surrounded by older men. But is there any moment where she is blown off her feet by the sexual attraction for this bloke? It doesn't feel like that. I don't think so. No. I mean, how, you know, how do I know? No, but I mean, it's an impertinent sort of idea to speculate on, really. But I don't think... One, I mean, Carol Thatcher herself describes it, you know, the daughter, describes it as almost a sort of marriage of convenience. They were each of them what the other was looking for. But they, and they the, both gave each other exactly what the other needed. But you over do a long say, marriage. So you do say uh, that they both gain credit because neither wished to pull rank on the other, that there mm. was room for both careers. Yes. And that's difficult. And very unusual at that period. I mean, Dennis is, in a sense, quite a remarkable man as an old-fashioned buffer of that generation. To have been happy to have a working wife of this sort whose career was as important as his. I mean, the, what, there is this... One occasion in about 1964 when he did have a sort of mental breakdown of some sort and went off to South Africa to sort himself out. This is all revealed by Carol Thatcher. It hadn't been revealed before in her book about, about Dennis. Um, but I think it is important and interesting that he did crack at one point and, and complained to people at work that it was a bit much, that he didn't have a wife to go home to in the evening. You know. John Campbell was talking to me when his biography of Margaret Thatcher was first published about 20 years ago. Interesting to note that um, it's now been made into separate volumes. Uh, There's The Grocer's Daughter, there's The Iron Lady, and those are all selling well prior to Christmas 2022. The Author Archive Podcast.